Tonight, we are going to finish uh, the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, if you remember our content of 1 Samuel, can you remember by the fact that this book is really about three people, three main characters. You have Samuel, who starts out the book. First seven chapters are about Samuel. And uh, he really, we learn about his parents, that they're godly people. They raise him to know and love the Lord. And then we, we learned about the culture that he grew up in, which was awful. I mean, this guy had people that didn't love the Lord, and they were the priests, and he had every bad example possible. But God used Use those bad examples to shape who Samuel was and make him into the man of God that would lead the nation of Israel spiritually through a dark time under King Saul. And that's the second guy the book is about, King Saul, the first king of Israel. And we've looked at him for a couple of weeks about his first two years, how they were good. He was humble at first and he was loving at first, but it lasted two years. And then the next 38 years of his kingship were a complete disaster, a complete waste of time. And then the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the third guy that 1 Samuel is about, and that is David. From the story of God raising him up from the sheepfold to fight Goliath, to serve in Saul's army, to eventually be banished, because Saul would be jealous and just have a hatred for David, and he would be banished, and he would spend 10 years, that we're going to read about the last part of that tonight, 10 years, his, his entire 20s, all of his 20s, David spent running around in the wilderness fearing for his life, running from King Saul. So this book, Saul, Samuel, and David. And tonight, we actually see all three of them together again for the last time. Only David is going to go into 2 Samuel. And uh, some of you say, well, isn't Samuel already dead? Yes, but uh, the grand tour, the comeback tour is tonight. So good stuff is ahead of us. But uh, last week, we looked at David's 10-year exile. We covered the first eight and a half years. Chapters 21 through 25, we learned about David lying to the priest to get some bread and some weapons, thinking everything would be okay. But that Doeg was snooping around in the back and he heard what they did and he told Saul and the priests were killed. So David lied and people died. Sounds like a political slogan I've heard before, but it really was true. David lied and the people died there in the city of Nob. Then David flees to Gath where he thinks he'll be safe, but he wasn't considering that the city, that was the city Goliath was from. And he's carrying Goliath's sword, not considering that everybody in Gath would know him because the people were singing the song. Saul had slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Tens of thousands of who? Philistines. So David has to pretend to be insane and he escapes to the cave of Adullam where 400 men who are in debt and depressed come to hang out with David. Then David hears the city of Kelilah has been invaded by the Philistines and Saul is not available to save him because he's hunting David. So David saves the city and he's rewarded by the city betraying him. So Saul pursues David to En Gedi, that beautiful oasis there by the Dead Sea. And he decides, Saul does, to take a nap in a cave that's nearby where uh, David's men are. And they think, oh, the Lord, he delivered you into their hands. And they try to get David to kill Saul, but he's not, he doesn't touch the Lord's anointed. And so finally, David has to deal with Nabal, this fool who will not share his vast wealth with the people in need. But he, God kills Nabal and David marries Abigail, Nabal, Nabal's wife, godly, beautiful wife, and all of that, all of that took eight and a half years to complete. And as we get here to chapter 26 tonight, we are now 18 months, a year and a half from the death of King Saul and the beginning of the reign of King David. But David doesn't know that. You understand that? Like he doesn't get the 10-year plan from God, as you and I don't either. He doesn't know that God is about to fulfill every promise he made to him. So the trials continue for David. It's God is shaping him and molding him and making him into the great king he will soon be. As we look at these chapters tonight, I want you to note five events that take place in this last 18-month period. Five events, all starting with the letter D. We'll start with the first one tonight, and that is where, where David decides to spare Saul in Ziph. By the way, you should have been handed a map when you walked in tonight. kind of helps with the story as you follow along where they're at. They're going to start out in Ziph, which is right there at the bottom of your map in between En Gedi and uh, Ziklag down there across from the Dead See, all this takes place there in the wilderness of Ziph. Chapter 28, let's look at it, 26, let's look at it together. 
Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hikola, opposite uh, Jezimon? Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hikola, which is opposite Jezom by the road. And David stayed in the wilderness. And he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay. And Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army. Now Saul lay within the camp and the people encamped all around him. And David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zariah, brother of Joab saying who will go down with me to Saul in the camp and Abishai said I will go down with you and so David and Abishai came to the people by night and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his spear struck in the ground by his head and Abner and the people lay all around him then Abishai said to David God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day now therefore please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth I will not have to strike him a second time But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head and they got away and no No man saw or knew it or awoke, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Now David went over to the other side and stood at the top of the hill afar off, a great distance being between them. And David called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Do you not answer, Abner? And Abner said, Who are you calling out to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy your lord the king. This thing that you have done is... It's not good. And the Lord lives. You deserve to die because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his head. And then Saul knew David's voice and said, is that your voice, my son, David? And David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, why does the, why does the Lord pursue his servant? For what have I done or what evil's in my hand? Now, therefore, please let my Lord, the king, hear the words of the servant if the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him, let him accept an offering. But if it's the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go, serve other gods. So now do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea, as when one hunts a, a, a partridge in the mountains. And then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. Listen, Saul, instead of being king and dealing with the Philistines and doing what he should have been doing, he is once again, as chapter 26 opens, out hunting David. And he's chased him to the wilderness of Ziph, around the city of Ziph that's right there on your map. And as Saul is camped, 3,000 men are camped in a, in a circle around him, with Abner, his top general, at his side. But David decides to sneak into the camp. And one of his generals, Abishai, goes with him, and God puts a deep sleep on the entire Israeli army. And it looks like, once again, God has delivered Saul right into David's hand. David's man, Abishai, says, let me kill him. I know you won't kill him, David. I know you won't touch him, but let me. I won't have to try twice, he says. I won't take a second swing. I'll get him on the first shot. This must have been such a temptation for David. Think it through with me. Eight and a half years is a long time to wait for a promise. But David won't do it. He grabs Saul's water jug and his spear, all that precious spear of Saul's, and he throws at everybody, and they hike back out of the camp. 
Once they're a ways off, David calls out to Abner, and I love it. He gives Abner a hard time. Abner, what kind of bodyguard are you? You should be put down. You're so ridiculous. And he's being a little flippant, but remember, he's 28. You don't really get smart until you're at least 30. Sorry, those of you in the 20s, but I was there recently, and I remember. You grow up a lot in the next decade. But So David, he's 28. He's taunting Abner. You should be put down. And, and, and Saul knows David's voice and says, is that you, my son? <laughs> Stop it with the my son business. But Saul hears, and you see a little glimpse at the end of this chapter, a little glimpse of the man that Saul could have been. He seems to finally get it, that David twice could have killed him, and he knows he would have done it if the tables were turned, if he had David in that same place. And so Saul declares, David, you will be king. And then Saul makes an eight-word summary of his life. So sad. Verse 21. I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. Friends, Saul started out with so much potential, but he let jealousy and insecurity get the better of him, and he basically wasted 38 years of his life. Instead of making inroads against the Philistines and setting up the nation of Israel for years to come, Saul wasted 38 years chasing something that was never a real issue. And I just point that out to you, precious church family, because you don't have to be King Saul to struggle like that. All of us can let our pride, our bitterness, our hurt of what others have done to us, a deep-seated bondage, steal years from our life when we could have been making inroads against the enemy, when we could have been setting the tone for our children and our children's children, instead we can play the fool and waste precious time. But of course, the heart of the Lord, if you find yourself in that boat tonight, is where are you going from this moment forward? Are you going to be sad about wasted time but keep walking in the same road? Or are you going to repent and go in a completely different direction from this day forward? Please don't let the enemy rip you off and think that the choice that you have tonight doesn't matter. Oh, I've already wasted too much time. Nope. The question is, where are you going from tonight on? Saul tells David, I'm done chasing you. And Saul and his men leave. Wow, this is what David's been waiting for for eight and a half years. What a victory. How amazing. You think David would have been on top of the world. That's not what happens next, though. Look with me in chapter 27. And David said in his heart, uh oh, that doesn't start good. David said in his heart, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines and Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. Then David arose and went over with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Monach, king of Gath. And so David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, and each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Winnem, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. And it was told to Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. So verse 4 is an indication that once again, Saul probably wasn't going to be a man of his word. Verse 5, then David said to Achish, if I have now found favor in your eyes, let me have a place in some town or in some country that I may dwell there. For why should your servants, should, you know, your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag, that's on the map there, that day, and therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. So now we're going to be four months from the time that he's about to become king. And David and his men went up and raised the, the Gersherites and the Gezerites, who were a bunch of old people, and the Amalekites. Just kidding. Just kidding. Gezerites, old people. Anyways. You're not, you're not paying attention. People who pay attention are home guarding their home, apparently. And those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old as you go to sure, even as far as the land of Egypt. And wherever David, whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. And then Achish would say, where have you made a raid today? And David would say, against the southern area of Judah, or against the southern area of the Jermeliites, and against the southern area of the Kenites. And David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should be informed on us, saying, David did, and thus was his behavior.
behavior all the time, he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying he had made his people Israel utterly abhor him. Therefore, he will be my servant forever. Again, as this story is happening, we are, we are a year and a half until David's greatest length of trial is over. And yet David doesn't know this and he despairs. We need to see this. You see, right before so often God breaks through, the enemy will step up the attack to get us to do what? To despair and pack it in. And that's what we see David doing in chapter 27. And we see why back in verse one. It says, David said in his heart, There's the problem. Instead of talking things over with the Lord, instead of going to God's word for encouragement, David's talking to himself. And I don't know about you, but there is no end to the foolishness I can come up with if I am only talking to myself. Does anybody else know what I mean by that tonight? Yeah, okay, good. There's a few of you that understand. Sometimes you look at me like I'm, I'm, I'm the only one up here. I appreciate the hands tonight because it's true. Someone says something to you or does something to you and what do we do? We start talking to ourselves. Why did he say that? Why did he do that? What did he really mean? Don't pretend like you don't do this. Some of the emails you send me, I know you do this. I know you do this. I know you do. There's no other way to come up with some of the things you guys come up with than exactly to do that. We talk to ourselves about what someone said or did, and we invent this entire scenario, don't we? Where we ascribe motives and reasons and outcomes all in our head, all in our head. Friends, Never, never is that a good idea. Never. Don't talk to yourself. Talk to the Lord. David is talking to himself and he ends up in Gath. Now, I don't know why they didn't put Gath on this map. So if you want to fill it in there, it's right across from Bethlehem. Once you get over the little red line there. So you got Saul's kingdom. Gath is a Philistine city right out of Saul's kingdom. So go west of Bethlehem and you can ride in there Gath. That's where David goes from Zith to the nearest Philistine city to flee from Saul. Now, if you're a Bible student that listens carefully, maybe you remember, hey, last week, isn't that where he fled? Isn't that where he had to pretend that he was insane? Why is David going back to the same city where he was previously in danger? Well, understand, first of all, it was eight and a half years ago, so it's kind of faded from his memory, as mistakes often do in our lives. But the other thing is he's not alone anymore. He has 600 warriors plus women and children. So this could be 1,000, 2,000 people rolling into this Philistine city. They're not going to easily rise up against him. And he goes there in Gath, but the pressure is kind of on him in Gath. So David says, hey, do you got a city I can live in? A city kind of out in the country. And the king of Achish gives him the city of Ziklag, which is right there south of where you wrote in uh, Gath to be. It's right on the outside of Israeli territory. And so he's there living in Ziklag. And as he's there, he's lying the entire time. Every day he's going out and he's raiding the, 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 the ones that are aligned with the Philistines. Those that have, have, have kind of like alliances with them. And he comes back to Achish and Gath and where have you gone today? Oh, in Judah. I'm killing Jews is what David is saying. And what is you? And he's lying. Don't you get kind of the sense that David struggles with lying? I mean, if you've been following along in these chapters... He has Jonathan lie to his dad when he wants to be absent from the feast. He has Michal, his wife, lie to her dad. He lied to the priest. Now he's lying to Achish. No wonder David later will write Psalm 120. And the cry of his heart is, Lord, remove from me lying lips. David, he struggled with lying. He's in a dark season killing people in this section. I mean, he'd go into a town and so no one could tell on Achish and ruin his, his secret. He's killing every man, woman, and child in the city. Friends, let's not, let's not paint it some way it's not. This is a dark, dark season in David's life this year and a half. And I, and I mention that to you because I see the Lord still being with him. The Lord still being for him. It doesn't mean the Lord wasn't grieved with what he was doing. Doesn't mean the Lord had ordered him to do these things, but the Lord was still with him. And I just point that out because, you know, most of us, we're hard on ourselves. Our sin really surprises us about ourselves, doesn't it? When I do something, it's like, I can't believe I did that. 
<laughs> and we picture God in heaven doing the same. Like the Lord's in heaven going, oh, I never thought the day would come. <laughs> You're not surprising God with your sin. You know, we surprise each other. We look at, other, we look at someone else that does something and we, oh, we speak in hushed tones. Can you believe what he did? I just mentioned to you that I don't, I don't necessarily feel like we have the Lord's heart on that. Not that the Lord isn't bummed out by sin in our lives. He certainly is. But how we have a tendency to throw one another under the bus, that is not the heart of the Lord. You realize there is only one God and every man is a man at best. Do you hear me on that? The best of men. David is one of the best men to walk the planet. And he obviously, as we get insight into his life, is a man at best. And we need to get that into our hearts. I believe if we got that into our hearts, that the best of men are men at best, we would see a lot less people walking out on churches. Oh, I just can't believe that pastor would have an attitude. Like pastors fly or something. Do you realize I'm not a superhero? Pastor Rob doesn't have a cape in his office. We get tired just like you. We have off days just like you. Get this, we sin just like you. And I'm not trying to make excuses. We should repent and say we're sorry, just like you. But sometimes we think, oh, that man, he's something special. Oh, that gal, she's so much like Jesus. And then the pedestal always gets kicked away and we don't know what to do. We need in churches, and you know what? We also need in marriages as well to realize this. The best of men are men at best. That person you're married to is such a great man. He is a man at best. And that special lady, well, she's not Jesus either. And when I realize that, when I see what God sees, that we are all but dust, then instead of talking to myself and, 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 and you know, taking others a little less seriously, I can just worship and count on the right Jesus, the Jesus who will never let me down. You only have one Jesus Let's be graceful to everyone else because I believe God really is. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that consequences don't have sin. Of course they do. I'm not saying that God doesn't care about sin. He cares a great deal about your sin. He bled for your sin. But your sin doesn't surprise him. And your sin, because of it, he doesn't give up on you. Sure, sin has consequences. Of course you'll pay the price for sin. Even when we think like David's doing right here, oh, I'm getting away with it. I'm killing the geezerites and I'm killing these other people and Achish just thinks I'm making a raid on Judah. (laughs) I'm so clever. You never get away with it eventually. I I read this article about a man in North Carolina. You'll love this. He was a lawyer and he bought a very expensive box of uh, 24 cigars Then he insured them against fire because, you know, fires break out, we see in our community. But within a month of having smoked the stockpile of very expensive cigars, he filed a claim with the insurance company stating the cigars were lost in a series of small fires. (laughs) This is a lawyer. The insurance company refused to pay, stating the obvious, that the cigars were lost in the normal manner. The man smoked them. And the lawyer sued because the policy did not specifically say what kind of fires were covered and not covered. And the lawyer won. He won the case. The judge in issuing the ruling, listen, this is, this is what he said in the article. I agree with the insurance company. The claim was frivolous. But the plaintiff holds a policy from the defendants that state the cigars are insurable even against fire. And it's not specific about what type of fires. So rather than endure a lengthy appeal process, the company paid the claim. But here's where it gets good. After the lawyer cashed the large check, The insurance company had the man arrested for 24 counts of arson. And with his his own insurance claim and his own testimony as evidence, the man was convicted of intentionally burning his own property, sentenced to two years in jail and a $24,000 fine. Woo! I love it when it works out right. I love it. I love stories like that. But I need to be reminded of that. I think I'm so clever. I'm fooling everybody. I'm fooling it. And and I can see David. Oh, I'm escaping Saul. I'm away from the pressures of Israel. This is all going to work out great. David thinks that. 
but it's all about to change. Look at just the first couple of verses of chapter 28. Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, you assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. And so David said to Achish, uh, surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, therefore I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. Oh, friends, understand the great dilemma that David is in at this moment. He has a promise that he is going to be king of Israel. Now the Philistines are going to war with Israel. And Achish, this king, he's been bringing all the stuff from dead Philistine allies to, thinks he's an enemy of Israel and thinks when the war's done, Israel's, David's coming with me. David's going to be my right-hand man. This is going to be fabulous. Oh, no, David must have thought. What am I going to do? I'm supposed to be the people's king, and now I have to kill him? I didn't expect this when I lied. I didn't expect this when I went to Gath, when I went into the world. I thought I'd just be a break from the battle. I never thought this would happen. What will David do? We won't read it in our setting tonight. Hopefully you already did. But in chapter 29, if not, you can read it tonight. What happens is David and his men are lining up for war. No doubt thinking, what are we going to do? If we go to battle against our countrymen, that'll be something they will never forgive. And so I will truly never be king. But if I don't, if I don't, the Philistines are likely to start their war against the Jews with a warm-up battle against the 600 of us. What am I going to do? You see, if you're reading these chapters and it sounds like David is into the battle, because it kind of does. You know, David's like, I'm your man. You know, we don't, I added that emphasis of like, I'm your man. (laughs) When you just read it, it it sounds like David is into the battle. I believe he's acting. He's selling the act to the Philistines. Why? So they won't kill him. But as David and his men are lined up for war, the other leaders of the other four cities, they see David and they say, Why is that guy coming along? Isn't that the guy they used to sing the song? David is slain his tens of thousands? And Achish, the king of Gath, says, no, 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 no. David's been making raid on the Jews all this time. They can't stand them, which, remember, wasn't really the case, but it's what this guy thought. The other kings say, well, what a better way to reconcile with his nation than to turn on us in battle. And who knows? Maybe that was David's plan all along. But Achish has to tell David, and the the others of the Philistines won't let you take me into battle. And David, you know, feigns sadness. Oh, let me go. And all of this comes back to what? The one song. The one song. The one song that started all those problems. Remember that way back in chapter, I think it was what, 17, 18? Where Saul's coming home from battle, and the ladies lie in the street, and they say, Saul has slain his thousands. And Saul's like, yes, I did. But David is tens of thousands. What? And from that moment, the jealousy begins. I bet there were times when David heard that song and thought, why did those girls write that song? I've been on the run for 10 years now because they got together and sang, David is slain his tens of thousands. But listen, listen, the song that started the trial, God eventually uses for good in David's life. I don't know about you, but I've seen in my own life, maybe you have too, that things I once thought, this is a horrible circumstance I have to deal with. Why me, Lord? Why that? Ends up being an instrument that God uses to shape me and even save me someday. I know people that that, that trials they go through seem to be just horrible at first, but over time they see the wisdom of God. For example, I, I used to wonder why when I was 10 years old, I got type 1 diabetes. I mean, I was a healthy, skinny, normal 10-year-old kid. Why, Lord? Why? Well, I've seen how God used it to shape my life. I wanted so bad to serve our country in the military. That, that, was, that was my goal when I was a kid. My grandfather served in the Navy. My stepfather was in the Air Force. I wanted to serve, and I was so bummed when they wouldn't let me serve because of diabetes. But who knows... Again, that's a wonderful thing if that's what you get to do. But who knows if I would be here tonight? Who knows if I'd be married to Christy? 
if God didn't put those circumstances in my life. Having that disease, secondly, has given me such a realization that, that life isn't forever. You know, I've always been one who I want to accomplish as much as possible in a 24-hour day. Some of you know that about me. Some people criticize me about that, but there's a reason for that. I truly realize that where some guys are expecting to live to 80, 90, 100, my life will be shorter in that season. So I want to accomplish everything God has for me in the time that he gives me. And I've seen him use something that I I can remember sitting in my backyard when I was 10 years old just saying, Lord, you know I hate needles. Why? Why? And I see over the years God was doing something, something deep, something important in my life. Same thing happening with David. Before we get to our next section and learn what was going on in Israel while David's having this dilemma in, in Philistine country, I want to look at one last thing. Sometimes we look at this dark season of David's life. We just, how do you know God was faithful? How do you know God was doing things in his life? There's a couple of indications. One is when we study the Psalms this summer, so excited about that. We're going to have a summer on the Psalms uh, in our Wednesday nights. We'll take a little break before we get into 1 Kings. You say, we haven't even done 2 Samuel. Well, strap in for the next five weeks. We'll get through it. But the reality is, in the summertime, we're going to look at the Psalms that David wrote, different types of Psalms. We're going to have shorter studies, you'll say, praise the Lord, and longer times of worship and waiting upon the Lord, excited about our summer studies in the Psalms. But as you will go through the Psalms, one of the things we'll realize is, is in Psalm 8, Psalm 81, and Psalm 84. If you have a King James or an NIV, there's a little small writing above the psalm that says those psalms were prayed, played on a Githite. And if you have a new King James, it's a little more helpful. It tells you that that was an instrument of gaff, like we see up on the screen there. It tells you he learned about that instrument in the city of Gath. In other words, when David was in the world for a year and a half, he heard sounds that he didn't recognize and discovered this instrument the people of Gath were using. And what David did was take that instrument and write inspired words from God's heart for that instrument to be used with. I just point that out for you to tuck that away. We don't run into this much on the West Coast, but from my time in Texas, and you might want to hide this away just in case everyone talks to you, sometimes we get asked, are guitars and drums, why are they allowed in worship? Those are instruments of the world. And when I went to a mainline denominational school when I was a kid, and I told them I was going to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, they, they, they told me without any, any, you know, in, any uh, misunderstanding, guitars and drums will never be okay for worship because they're instruments of the world. You can't use Satan's instruments to do God's work. And their heart was very sincere, and I didn't know what to say as a little kid. As I've continued in my knowledge of the word, I realize that David, in Psalm 8, Psalm 81, Psalm 84, what did he do? He took the instruments of the world, one he found in Gath, and he used it for inspirational and acceptable worship to God. I see from the Psalms that worship isn't about the instrument. It's about the heart of God communicating with us and us to him, lifting up our souls to the throne of God. God was being faithful to David. Even when he's sitting there wondering, what am I going to do? How, I can't go to war against the Jews. I can't go to war against, uh, against the Philistines. What am I going to do? God saves the day. David is one of the darkest seasons in his life. And what do we see? God is still faithful. Why? Because that's just who he is. He is downright, plain, old, faithful. No matter how you are. And I believe one of the greatest gifts you can give the Lord is just to trust him to trust him with your finances, to trust him with your family, to trust him with your job, to trust him with your heart. Look, I'm a father. Providing and protecting my kids is just what I do. I put food on that table. I shield them from harm to the best of my ability, no matter how they act, no matter how they're doing in obedience. You know why? Because they're my kids and I love them. And you know, it would break my heart if they were still checking the fridge all day long. Is there still food in there, Dad? Will dad still get clothes for me? Will dad protect me? Will dad be there for me? It would break my heart because I'm their dad. It's just what I do regardless of how they act. I told you this weekend we were down with uh, Phil and Rebecca McKay. and <laughs> The McKays have four kids, three of which are boys that are just like Phil. Pray for Rebecca McKay, if you know Phil McKay. Just pray, 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 pray. 
because these boys, and you know, she was just pouring out her heart to us like, they're so wild. <laughs> I'm sure nobody's other kids ever act like that. And I just laughed and just started remembering when my kids were that age. You know, my kids are older now, but when we were in Texas and they were young, I remember one night, we, uh, my wife and I were on a date and my, my grandma, who's now home with Jesus, she was watching them, but she, doesn't, she didn't hear so well toward, toward the end there. And, and we come home, and I don't know if you remember this, hon, but we go in the back and, and, and the kids' rooms, I mean, you know, the kids' rooms looked like a bomb had gone off in the kids' rooms and, you know, toy bins are turned over and Haley was asleep, but Jonathan comes out of the closet just dressed in a turban he's made out of clothes in his head, you know, just comes out of the closet like, here I am, you know, and, and he's holding an empty bottle of vinegar in his hand that he had gotten when he climbed up onto the washing machine. And, you know, Christy was like, did you drink that? And he's like, no, I filled it. (laughs) And we were like, oh no. And we smelled his breath. And Christy was like, whoa, no, no, your breath would smell a lot better if you had drank vinegar. So no, 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 that's not where it is. And then we went in his bed and his bed was just soaked and it reeked of vinegar. And I mean, those things were common. They were common when our kids were little. And you know what? I never stopped loving them. I was a little frustrated that night. (laughs) Even if you're deaf, grandma, great grandma's watching you, you gotta be good. But the reality was, I didn't, you know why? Because they're my kids. I just mentioned that to you because again, I I think we, we started to get in our mind like, oh, you know, I'm disappointed in me and God must be disappointed in me. Listen, he's grieved at your sin because it hurts you. But he still loves you. You're in trouble you're his kids. You fail. You get an attitude. You get involved in sin. You're faithless. Second Timothy says, even more faithless, he remains faithful because that's who he is. And I believe he's blessed. When you just trust him, God, walk me through this. Give me a different heart. Teach me to depend on you. Teach me to realize your love isn't based on my fickleness. It's just who you are. I believe that brings a real smile to his face. God was being faithful to his man, David, even, even in one of his darkest seasons. Now, while all that's going on in Philistine country, what's happening over in Israel? Well, for that, look with me, if you would, at the end of chapter 28. In chapter 28, we, we see what's going on with King Saul. Verse 4, actually, as we pick it up for context. Verse 4, it says, The Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together and they encamped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or the Urim or by the prophets. And Saul said to his servants, find me a woman who's a medium that I might go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, in fact, there's a woman who's a medium and indoor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes and he went and two men went with him and they came by the woman by night and said, please conduct a seance for me. This guy's a real winner. And bring up for me one I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, look, you know what Saul has done. Hello, medium. It's Saul right in front of you. Anyways, how he has cut off the mediums and the spirit is from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord saying, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul saying, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. Why did you, what did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up and he's covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. And he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. And Samuel said to Saul, verse 16, verse 15. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am a, I'm deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. And Samuel said, why, why do you ask me seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me for the Lord has torn your kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord to execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek, 
Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. And the Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. So the first D was deciding to spare Saul's life. The second event was deception in Gath. David was very being deceptive for those year and a half. Now we see a dumb decision by Saul at Endor. He's nervous. I mean, we just got a flash of what's going on in Israel. And in Philistine country, they're gathering for war. They're having the big parades, like maybe those of you that are a little older remember seeing from the, from the Russians in the 80s. You know, they parade out there in Red Square, and it would be on the news. And this is what they're doing. They're parading. They're walking through. And, 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 and Saul notices the Philistines gathering for battle. He doesn't know what to do. He's no longer in an active relationship with God, but he longs for spiritual insight. So Saul goes to a medium to a psychic, to contact Samuel, who's died at this point in the story, to see what he should do. The problem is, Saul has banished all the medians, all the psychics out of the land, something he did that was good while he was king. So, so, so he comes to the woman of Endor. We have, we have a picture of this woman, the woman of Endor. There she is. Oh, just kidding. Just kidding. That's, that's Star Wars Endor. No, Endor is not a moon in Star Wars. Well, it is. But Endor is not far from where Saul was camped. Again, if you reference your map, we'll put it up on the screen, but I printed you out one because I can't see the screen, so I don't expect you to either. Endor is right there at the north of the map. The only thing that's in uh, yellow is Mount Gilboa. That's where Saul's going to die. And so he, is, he goes down to the nearest city there in Endor to look for a medium, a psychic, to be able to speak to Saul for him. In fact, the next picture is an excavation of what was Endor. It's not a city anymore. And you can see Mount Gilboa there in the background where Saul will eventually die. So Saul pretends to be someone else in order to fool this psychic, which brings up an interesting point. If she was a psychic, shouldn't she have known? That was supposed to be funny. I'm sorry it wasn't. Shouldn't she have known? I mean, a good psychic would know when the king walks in the door. Remember, he's the only seven-footer in the entire nation. You don't even have to be psychic. When you see the seven-footer, it's King Saul. But she doesn't know, and she says, what do you want me to do? And Saul says, I want to see Samuel. Now, this passage has created some confusion and different commentators interpret it in different ways. Some Bible scholars believe the lady was faking. Some people believe it was a deception from the enemy. I believe this was really Samuel. Why do I believe that? Well, number one, because the lady freaks out when she sees Samuel. Just another evidence this lady is a fraud. Because when, it, when, a, when a person actually comes back from the dead, she's, oh, <laughs> what's going on here? Obviously not something she was used to seeing. So, so number one, she freaks out when she sees Samuel. Secondly, because Samuel tells Saul the truth. He says, you're going to die. You're not going to have victory over the Philistines. You're going to die. If this was something the enemy was doing, and, and by the way, the enemy can do crazy supernatural things. I just mentioned that to you because I hope not. I hope not. I hope not that this congregation messes around with Ouija boards and tarot cards and psychics. Oh, it's just pretend. That's something dangerous you don't want to get involved with. I remember my real dad coming home one night. He was around for my first four years, and I remember certain things. One of the things I remember is him telling me, I went to see a psychic, and that lady told me things no one else could have ever known. Of course, she's real. And, you know, I'm four, so I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> now I would say, yeah, she's real. Evil for real. Evil for real. The demonic force, listen, is nothing, nothing you want to mess around with. Satan can mimic, but I don't think the message would be, today you're going to die. I think the message would have been, you're doing a great job, Saul, but keep trying to kill David. That's not what he says. He says, you're going to die. But then thirdly, why do I believe it's really Samuel? Because the Bible says, verse 15, Samuel said to Saul. <laughs> the Bible says, Samuel, not, not an imitation, not someone duping him. Samuel said to Saul. So I believe this was really Samuel. And notice his message to Saul. Tomorrow, you will be where? With me, Samuel says. With me. Now, you see, I think this answers a very important question that Bible scholars really debate about. Was Saul saved? 
I mean, let's be honest. After reading his life, it's kind of hard to think he was. He didn't really have a heart for God. He lived in continual sin. I got a lot of reasons to think Saul will not be sharing a condo next to you in heaven. There's a lot of reasons to believe that. Except for the fact the Bible says, Samuel says, today, tomorrow, you're going to be with me. You see, I believe Saul had serious problems. But I believe Saul was saved for many reasons, but especially verse 19. Now we can look at that and think, how could that be? He was so off. He made so many poor choices. But I was thinking, you know, if my life or your life was written out in every detail, think that through with, with me for a minute. I know it's a scary thought. Don't talk out loud, but think about every detail of your life, every thought you have had, every action you intended to do and didn't, didn't do, and everything you've done that nobody else knows about. If that was all written in a book, number one, you would pray to God it would never be published, let alone the bestseller of all time. Poor Saul has his life in detail in the bestseller of all time. But if it was your life we were reading, how many people would read it and go, Saul's not that bad. (laughs) Saul's not that bad. Man, I'm reading about him and her and woo. See, I think if we're honest... Saul has a life in many ways that is sometimes like ours. Again, it goes back to, I think there's a theme of this tonight, that the Lord is far more gracious than we are. That's not to say that sin doesn't have consequences. It will for Saul and it will for you. But I don't believe God is looking for loopholes not to save people. Personally, personally, you can disagree with me if you want, you're fine. But I believe he's looking for reasons to accept them. He's looking for reasons and I wanted that to mention that to you because I know, I know many of you have prodigals. And in your mind, you think, what happened? When you were their youth pastor, Jason, they went to camp. They made professions of faith. They loved Jesus. But now they're so lost in the world and I'm worried and I get that. But as I was studying and reading last week, I just believe the Lord wanted me to point this out to encourage your heart. Saul was saved, not saved from the effects of his sin, and neither, and neither will your kids. But will you see them in heaven? I, I believe so. I believe so. Now, I know there's some of you in the room tonight that irritates you so much. No, no, no. They're in sin, and you know, Jason, what the Bible says about continual sin. Of course, of course I do. But first, I really believe the Lord directed my heart, my attention to verse 19 to encourage someone in the room tonight. And really, when you think about it, this attitude where you know for sure who's saved and who's not, and you get to decide, well, honestly, it sounds a little bit more like a Pharisee than Jesus. Jesus, who said to the woman caught in the very act of adultery, what did he say? Woman, I don't, what? Condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus was honest about the pain that sin brings and the need to avoid it, but he did not condemn the lady. So no, I believe Saul is in heaven. You take it for what you want. The fourth thing we come to is distress at Ziklag. Look at just a couple of verses out of chapter 30. After the whole point of David, we switch gears now from what's going on in Israel. Saul's seeking a median and Samuel comes back and says, you're dead tomorrow. At the same time, at the same time, that's going on in Israel, chapter 30. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they had taken captive the women and those that were there from small to great and they didn't kill anyone but carried them away and went on their way. And so David and his men came to the city and there it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken away. And David, David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved. But every man for his son and his daughter. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. 
And David said to Abathar the priest, Emelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abathar brought the ephod to David and David inquired of the Lord and said, shall I pursue this troop and shall I overtake them? And he answered, pursue them for you shall overtake them and without fail recover all. So David went, he and the 600 men that were with him and came to the brook Bezor where those stayed, those who stayed who were left behind. And David pursued, he and 400 men, the 200 stayed behind for they were so weary they could not cross the brook Bezor. And they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and they gave him bread and he ate and there let him drink, drink water and they gave him a piece of, a cake of, of figs and two clusters of raisins. And so when he had eaten, his strength came back. He had eaten no bread and drank water for three days and three nights. And David David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you? And he said, I'm a young man from Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Chirithites and the territory which belongs to Judah and the southern area of Caleb. We burned Ziklag with fire. And David said, can you take me down to this troop? And he said, swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this troop. And when he had brought him down, there they were spread out over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels, <laughs> except 400 of them escaped, who rode on camels and fled, verse 18. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. As David's coming back from being rejected by Achish, think about it. They had been away for some time. Who knows how long the parade was going on. They're coming back thinking, oh, praise the Lord. We don't have to kill our fellow brother Jews Oh, praise the Lord, we're going home. Over the next hill is going to be our wives and our children. And they, they come over that next hill and they see their home burning with fire and everyone's gone. We see grown men just weeping. You would have too. And David is depressed. His men want to kill him. But the story tells us, friends, please, please, understand it, that David recovers all. How? Why? Well, we'll get there in just a second, but before we do, I want you to see a contrast to this. Because while David is depressed and distressed and yet recovers all, the same things happen to Saul, but it'll be a very different ending. Look with me, if you would, in chapter 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan. No. And Abinadab and Machshua, Saul's sons, and the battle became fierce against Saul. And the archers hit him and he was severely wounded by the archers. And Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest the uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and he died with him. So Saul, his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together the same day. At the same moment that David is distressed and yet recovering all, at the same moment, Saul is watching his world go up in smoke. He's watching his sons die. He watches the men of Israel being butchered by the Philistines. And I wish there was a verse that said that Saul recovered all. But it doesn't say it. It was the end of Saul in the end of his family, in the end of his kingdom. A sad, sad end for the first king of Israel. He sees his sons die. He watches his men die. He falls on his sword and dies. And Israel falls into the hands of the Philistines. What a contrast to David who recovered all. Before we go our way, we're almost done. Before we go our way, what's the difference? They both were not where they should have been with the Lord. Both of them. They both did not deserve to recover all. So what happened? If you go back to chapter 30, we see David do something that will set him apart from Saul. What does David do? 
see it because maybe you find yourself in a similar situation. Everything's burning around you. Maybe your family's being torn apart. Maybe, maybe like Saul and David, it's your fault. What are you going to do? Fall on your sword like Saul and lose all? Or do you want to recover all? Well, if you want to recover all, tune in. What did David do? Verse 6 of chapter 30. He strengthened himself in the Lord. David encouraged himself at the Lord. No one at that moment was going to encourage David. His other men all wanted him dead. And oftentimes that's how it is. We need to learn to encourage ourselves. If all we do is wait for the pastor or a neighbor, there'll be trouble. How did David encourage himself in the Lord? The scripture doesn't tell us. What a bummer. (laughs) But I bet we know. What do we know from scripture? I bet David worshiped. I bet David worshiped. David was there when that distressing spirit came upon Saul. And as David played his harp and sang songs to the Lord, that distressing spirit went away. And I bet David learned then and realized, hey, when I'm distressed, I need to worship. Do you know this, church family, that music affects us emotionally? It does, it does, it does. That's why I hope a huge part of your iPod, a huge part of your CD collection, few of you that are still in the 8-track age, a a bunch of your 8-tracks, they're dedicated to worship. Why? Can I listen to other stuff? I guess you can. I can't. I get emotionally affected. I think music was designed to affect you. I think country music is designed to make you sad. I just do. You listen to music and the girl left me and my dog died. And you're just like, I need a good cry. So I put on some country music. That's all right. That's all right. If you want to be depressed, go ahead. Pop music today is designed to seduce you. I was at a place where it was playing all behind us. And every song, every song was about hooking up, having sex. It's designed to affect you emotionally. Well, I'm into heavy metal. Okay, I used to be into that. I would get so angry. So angry. I remember sitting in my room one time. My poor grandma, you know, I lived with later in my... I mean, she comes in. She's like, how's your day? Fine! Because you know? <laughs> I, oh, I was so angry. It seems to me, country's designed to depress you. Pop is designed to seduce you. My country music doesn't depress me. Well, that's just more evidence that Taylor Swift really is more pop than country. Anyways, metal is designed to anger. There's an emotional response. There's an emotional response. And worship is designed to do what? Chase away the enemy. So do I only have to listen to worship? No. If you want to be depressed, seduced, and angry, do whatever you want. But if you want to be encouraged in the Lord, if you're saying, how do I encourage myself in the Lord? Spend some time in worship. I bet David worshiped. I bet he got in the word. All throughout the Psalms, David holds up the importance of the word. And God, it'll encourage you and strengthen your walk in God. Do you have to read your Bible to be a Christian? Of course not. But why wouldn't you want to be encouraged and built up? Why don't you want your spouse, your children, running their emotions through the grid of God's word? I bet David worshiped. I bet, I bet he got in the word. We know he prayed from verse 8. He inquired of the Lord. He talked things over with God. And I find it so amazing that God didn't say, oh, where's that voice been for 18 months? Oh, now you're coming to me when your city's burned and your wife's gone. Oh, now, now you're coming to me. Haven't heard? No way. God just met David in this trial as God will do the same to you. Do you feel like your world's going up in smoke? Strengthen yourself in the Lord. Spend some time in worship. Spend some time in the word. Talk things over with him in prayer. And what you will find like David is God won't chide you for being away. He'll welcome you back with open arms and with him and only with him you will recover all. God will restore the years the locusts have eaten. God will turn beauty into ashes. God will give you the garment of praise as you give him your spirit of heaviness. That is the kind of God we serve. You gotta seek him. 
You've got to hang out with him. You've got to worship him. You've got to talk to him. Or like Saul, you can go it on your own. You can figure things out. But eventually you're going to fall on your sword because the world, my flesh, and the devil are horrible things to worship and serve. But there is no one like the Lord our God. There's no one. Next week we'll get into 2 Samuel and we'll see how David becomes king over Judah and eventually king over all of Israel. Hope that you can be with us. Let's stand together as the worship team comes back out. Father, tonight as we wrap up this important book, Lord, so many lessons rolling around before us tonight. But I just think the most important one is there's no one like you, Jesus. There's no one. Sometimes we serve the world and it's just empty. Sometimes we serve our flesh. It's pointless. Sometimes we we serve other people and other people just let us down. Lord, help us to remember there's no one like you. And when we find ourselves depressed, upset, distressed, like David, may we strengthen ourselves in the Lord. May we realize that when we cry out to you, you won't chide us and be mad at us for not seeking you for the last 18 months. But Lord, you will welcome us back. And I believe by your spirit, you will help us recover all. Lord, because there's no one like you. So tonight as we go our way, may that be on our heart and on our minds. There is no one like you. And may we worship you like that's true. May we trust you, Lord, like we are your children and you are our father. And even when we're faithless, you're faithful and you're going to do great things. Lord, may that be our response tonight in worship and in prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.